Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the New Statesman podcast where we invite our international editor Jeremy Cliff and US editor Emily Tamkin to speak to me and my colleague Alva Ray about what's going on in the world. Today we're joined by our international editor Jeremy Cliff and our US editor Emily Tamkin who are starting their own podcast tomorrow called The World Review but we wanted to invite them onto our podcast to speak to them a bit about the work that they're doing and how they're doing it. So what's it been like for you two writing for an international audience during this time? I came to came to journalism as a foreign affairs reporter. So I was always explaining different parts of the world and what was happening there to Washington, D.C. and to the United States. And actually, one of my first jobs was uh, I was at Foreign Policy magazine. I was covering the diplomats in Washington, D.C. So trying to suss out you know, how policy in Washington, D.C. looked to non-Americans. So for me, because I'm now covering the United States, it's sort of that in reverse. It's explaining what's not just what's happening, but also why it matters and why people who live many, many miles, kilometers away should care. I think that sums it up well in the sense that our idea when we set out with the New Statesman's internationalization was to try and kind of apply the same approach to world affairs as we do to British politics, which is to say, to be quite kind of straightforward, to get to the bottom of things, to take a kind of broadly progressive point of view, but not to be too tribal and to kind of just put things as they are. And where are each of you based? Because we've not actually we've not actually met altogether in the office yet. No, this is our first meeting and it's just our voices. I'm in Washington, D.C. And I'm in Berlin. So longtime followers of yours, Jeremy, from even before you joined us at The New Statesman and when you were at The Economist previously, you were notable not just for your sort of international coverage, but I think on Twitter, you're quite notable for your observations of how Britain and the UK is seen abroad. And Anush and I were thinking that it might be interesting before we go on to talk about both of your briefs and international affairs to talk a little bit about how you think the UK is being seen by the world at the moment. Uh, Jeremy, you go first. I mean, that's, that's something I've been grappling with a lot in the last few years. And the way I see it is that there are basically two visions of Britain seen from abroad. And in many people's eyes outside of the UK, the two are in conflict. So on the one hand, you have the idea of Britain as a global country, a kind of fairly progressive country. You know, people in places like Germany are aware of the fact that the UK 
is fairly progressive on things like, you know, kind of gender rights and, you know, it's a fairly multicultural society. And, you know, a lot of people in places here, like here in Berlin have been to London, kind of seen that. And they kind of know Britain as this really open, optimistic, pluralist sort of country. And on the other hand, you have this Britain that a lot of people have been experiencing through the news from that's come out of the UK in the last few years, namely, you know, the Britain of the Brexit talks, the Britain of the Johnson premiership, the Britain of, I mean, in the last few months, a seemingly pretty bad reaction to the COVID-19 crisis. And a lot of people outside the UK are trying to reconcile, on the one hand, the Britain that they think they know and like, which is this kind of quite interesting, quite sort of distinctive, but ultimately quite progressive country with the country that they are now grappling with when they look at the news, which is a, a country that seems to be run by, you know, quite a conservative class-based sort of hierarchy of leaders that don't seem to be making a very good job of things. And the way I experience Britain's perceptions from outside the UK is this kind of constant attempt to reconcile the one with the other. Mm -hmm. I think that probably chimes with Britain's own conflicted (laughs) (laughs) self-image. Emily, do you agree with that? I mean, broadly, yes, I agree with you. I think from an American perspective, to the extent that Americans are following what's happening in Britain, I do think specifically with COVID-19, there's a sense that like, wow, we messed it up so much worse than anyone, except for Britain. I think there's this kind of like Britain also botched the response, at least in terms of sort of more progressive minded followers of international news. So there's that element of of watching, you know, watching Boris Johnson go to the hospital and then come out and show a packet of Tim Tams. And it's like, what are you, what is going on on that island? And then you look around and you're like, oh, wait, who am I to talk? I will say that, and I'm not the first person to make this observation. And in fact, I'm stealing it from the Washington Post's Ishan Thoreau. But if like the fact that it was a multi-day or multi-week scandal that Dominic Cummings left the house shows the difference, the difference of size and scandal. And I'm not saying that, you know, that it shouldn't have been a scandal or that people shouldn't try to hold their their politicians and political figures accountable. But like, if our scandal was that an advisor left the house, we would just be a completely different country than we are. Like Mike Pence went into the Mayo Clinic, a major medical institution during a pandemic without a mask. And that wasn't the worst thing that happened here this that week. So I think those two, those are the two observations that I would make about how we see what's happening there. And we've been doing quite a lot of of data analysis and international comparisons. And we had a global health policy forum last week. And a lot of people were mentioning, Jeremy, how they've been impressed with Germany's response. Is there a sense in Germany that not just in the context of looking at Britain and how it's dealt with it, but is there a sense that they have been sort of pioneers in this? I mean, Germans are quite pessimistic. And so it takes a lot to persuade them that they've done something well. What they do recognize is that others have done done it worse. And so when you talk, when I, when I say I'm from Britain, or when you talk about France, or the, especially the US or Brazil or Russia, people here will roll their eyes and say, God, how is it there? But it's true that, I mean, you know, statistically, Germany's done quite well. You know, people here will tell you, well, Austria did it better at the start. You know, they locked down sooner or South Korea did better at contact tracing. But for a big Western democratic country, Germany did pretty well. And I mean, I've I've written on the New Statesman a bit about why that might have been. Nobody's absolutely nailed the answer, but it seems to be some combination of a sort of a quite decentralized health system where kind of different laboratories could get on with testing quite soon, a fairly kind of science-oriented leadership in the chancellery. I mean, Angela Merkel is a scientist, and just a kind of quite a kind of high trust 
political system where people get on with things and can execute policy quite well. And I think it will take a long time for us to work out which of those factors were most important. But it's true that Germany's done well. You know, we went into lockdown quite soon. We've come out quite quickly. And our lockdown was not as bad as it was in a bunch of other countries, including Britain, France, Spain, Italy. You know, we never were stopped from leaving the house more than one or two times a day. We were never asked why we were outside. You know, even at the peak of the crisis, a lot of shops stayed open. So Germany had, you know, in some ways the best of all worlds, you know, we had quite a, a mild lockdown and quite a mild pandemic. Why that's the case, we're going to work out in, in the future. But I don't think that translates into a kind of great sense of German complacency, I mean, or, or kind of, you know, satisfaction. People here still are asking why things weren't done better and what could be done differently in the future. What will the two of you be bringing to your podcast that you're starting tomorrow? Are you going to be talking about both of your beats or are you going to be inviting other writers on that you've, that you've had writing for your section? We're going to bring our sparkling wit. No, um, <laughs> you know, basically it's, it's meant to keep listeners up to breast with the news of the world and also help them with gaining some perspective on it all. So every week we will look at how this week will be thought of and how we think that the week will be remembered in history, what we think the major events going forward might be. But we'll also every week will or most weeks we'll be bringing on a guest, either an expert of some kind in, in their field or a writer for the magazine or for our section. You know, the world is large and full of perspectives and we want to expose people to many, many voices while they listen to the pod. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So uh, Emily, you've had a really interesting and a quite moving long read on the New Statesman website this week, basically about who gets to be Indian in Modi's India, if that's a fair categorization. For um, listeners who haven't read it yet, what exactly is going on in India at the moment around nationality and citizenship and the persecution of Muslims? Basically, right now in India, there was an amendment to a law that says that refugees of basically any religion but Islam can become citizens of India. Why this is so controversial? First of all, the Indian constitution is explicitly secular. And second of all, though the government denies it, there were many people who saw it, who said, oh, this is possibly in connection with plans to put out a national registry of citizens in which under which citizens of India would need to get all sorts of documents from generations past to prove that they're Indian citizens. And if they don't have them, then they're stripped of their citizenship. This is what happened in the state of Assam and Hindu Indians were caught up in it. So 
there are some who say, oh, so now they've amended this act so that if you're stripped of your citizenship and you're not Muslim, your Indian identity, your Indian legal citizenship can be reinstated. And my piece is sort of about, you know, that's the formal process, but there's this this separate but related informal process that I saw when I was there, which is that if you criticize the government or the ruling party, the BJP, or this kind of thinking in any way, you're criticized as anti-national. And that's true if you're a member of the opposition party or the main opposition party or the a local opposition party. It's hey, Emily, is anti-national a sort of fixed political label in India today? No, in that it's 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 pretty fluid and flexible, right? Like there there's no status that you can achieve that will necessarily protect you from being anti-national. So, you know, the Congress party, they're anti-national. The party that ran and won in Delhi against the BJP, they're anti-national. Students are anti-national. You know, a former governor of Rajasthan who's Christian, she's an anti-national. So to be clear, the, the Congress party was Gandhi's party, right? Yeah, exactly. And 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 ruled for generations, but is not in power right now. And doesn't really seem to have a clear path back to power because the current head of the party is because he's stepped down and I think is planning to step back up is Rahul Gandhi, who doesn't, by all accounts, doesn't really seem to have the taste for power that his predecessors did, or and certainly not that Modi has. What really struck me in your piece was that you were out and about, you were talking to students who who were having to grapple with the questions that you were asking them about what it means, you know, to be to be anti-national, as you've just been talking about. And you you know, you go to cafes and meet sources there. How willing and how forthcoming were were people? Because it sounds like a very tense atmosphere in which you were reporting. I was actually extremely surprised that the students I spoke to were comfortable being quoted by name because they have had their university, you know, the police have forcibly entered their university. There's been video of police beating these students, not these individuals, but, but students at that campus. But there were some, absolutely, there were some people I spoke to who said, I will talk to you about this. I will walk you through this, but you cannot use my name. I live here. It's too, it's too sensitive. So yeah, it is, it is something that people are, it's very sensitive. It's very fraught. And there, yeah, there were people who, who were not comfortable with me using their names in this article. And I, I get it. They don't want to be labeled as anti-nationals either. That must have been one of the last pieces where you did sort of on the ground face-to-face reporting as well, because of what soon came after you left India. Yeah. So I I wrote this, I reported this piece out while I was in India. I got there mid-December. Actually, I landed the day before the police forcibly entered Jamia, the majority Muslim university that's mentioned in the piece, and left in mid-March, weeks earlier than I was supposed to because of the pandemic. So I went from traveling around, I was there on a fellowship looking at the India-Russia relationship. So I went from like traveling around this massive country and and talking to people and doing face-to-face reporting to basically being in my one-bedroom apartment, thinking about and writing about and trying to talk to people about the pandemic constantly. So it was a real a real switch. And I think reading the piece back, I do think that there there's a difference between face-to-face reporting and on-the-phone email reporting that I think is reflected in a lot of coverage right now, not just my own, but certainly my own as well. And how does that play into your reading, Emily, of the events of the last few days? Because, I mean, in the past week, we've had reports of a quite major clash between Indian and Chinese troops in the the Lakdar region of the Himalayas, which is a sort of border region between India and China. And it's been a kind of bloodless border for the last few decades, until recently when there was a major clash where I think over 20 Indian soldiers and according to some reports, 30 or more Chinese soldiers died. 
I mean, having kind of been in India for this febrile period, looking back at that, I mean, how do you see this news? Well, two things. First, you know, after this happened, some TV media in India is is by and large very promoty. And there were some TV anchors, you know, hosts who came out and said, disparage the army so as to make Modi look better, which I thought was pretty surprising on, on, you know, when you first see it, it's surprising. But on reflection, it's like, no, this fits, right? Because it was almost like, it was not quite this, but it was almost like the army to fit this narrative had to be anti-national. Yeah. And the second thing is that, you know, if this is all about this is the strong leader who's supposed to who's protecting India and keeping it safe. And it's like, well, you're keeping it safe from who? Because now there's actual an actual military clash with a, another global power. So you've kept us safe from from what? From our Muslim fellow citizens, but not from this. So I think that there's that element of anger. Certainly, I mean, it's I'm sure that that's a small minority in the country that sees it that way. But there is that element of it, right, of how your rhetoric and your persecution of a certain subset of people cannot protect you. Yeah. No, that for me is the big question. You know, India and China have not been to war since the 1960s, but they've always had a kind of slightly tense relationship. And you now have, you know, the whole situation is changing with the rise of China in that India has not experienced the same economic boom as China has. You know, about 10 or 20 years ago, everyone was saying, you know, India is going to be the next China, but their growth rates have not really lived up to that expectation. And you've had China kind of move its focus on Central Asia and the Indian Ocean in its diplomatic efforts. You know, there's a lot of talk about this whole Belt and Road Initiative where China's, you know, building new trade links across Central Asia, which obviously affects India, not least because one of its main partners there is Pakistan, Mm -hmm. with which India has had a long kind of rivalry. And that also goes through the Indian Ocean, which is seen as India's kind of, you know, immediate neighborhood. And so in some ways, I mean, I'm, I'm grappling with this at the moment because we're going we're gonna to write about this in uh, our World Review newsletter, which is the sort of accompanying read to the podcast that we're about to launch. You can subscribe to the newsletter on our website, by the way. To really understand what's going on in these tussles in the Himalayas, you have to kind of realize the dynamics of this relationship between India and China. And you have on the one hand, the one power that is really racing ahead of the other, you know, China in every respect, economic, military, diplomatically, is a more powerful player than India. And yet at the same time, India feels encroached upon by a lot of what China's doing. And so it's going to be, you know, the combination of what Emily talks about, the kind of domestic, the rise of Hindu nationalism within India, plus the rise of China on India's borders, you know, both the maritime border to the south and east and west and the Himalayan border to the north, where these clashes have been playing out in the last week, there's a lot of potential for conflict. And I, I just want to add that at least when I when I was there, China was not universally spoken about as an adversary. There were some people who talked about, well, what can we emulate from? Because I was going around and trying to speak to policymakers about India, Russia, US, and inevitably in that conversation, China comes up because it looms so large, both in the Indian political imagination, but also just realistically in the world. And it was not universally, oh, China is our enemy. There were people who talked about, what can we learn from China? There were people saying, well, you know, China is this economic powerhouse. And I, there were some people who said they wanted to be a partner with the U.S. in the in the Indo-Pacific, but they were worried that the U.S. would go too far and lead India into a confrontation with China, which they explicitly did not mm. want. So India has been walking, not to, it's, it's sort of a cliche to say that they've been walking a fine line, but they have. And it will be interesting to see 
how not only what happens when your rhetoric fails to protect you, but when you're when you're forced into taking a posture that by all accounts you you didn't want to take. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's going to be fascinating to see what position India ends up taking because you know this is a country that you know, managed somehow, and it was not easy, it was the great achievement of Indian foreign policy during the Cold War to remain broadly neutral between East and West, you know, not to aggravate either the US or the Soviet Union too much, where the New Delhi today can pull off the same trick and kind of position itself between the US and China. Emily, did you get a sense when you were in New Delhi where the Indians saw, if they were forced to choose, do you think Indians would choose China or the US? Between those two, India would go with the United States. The complicating factor here is Russia, because India, first the Soviet Union, and then Russia have had this longstanding relationship. Yeah. There are many in India who resent the United States for, in the, in the policymaking class, who resent the United States for pushing Russia toward China and who have to, who are, who are saying, well, we need to stay in this relationship with Russia so that Russia doesn't just go toward China. How Russia now manages this triangle, I think, will be will be interesting. And what what role the United States, which is, some might say, not in a position, right, to to get involved in an India, China, Russia mm. dance right now, what position we will take will also be interesting. But I think, I don't think that you would find many in India who would say, oh, we're going with China over the United States. Yeah. First of all, I don't think you would find many in India who say, we should definitely go with this one country that's sort of not, it's not really how the, the policymakers want to engage in partnerships, right? It's not like all or nothing. But second of all, I think especially now that they're in a land dispute, that's not going to be, it's not going to be like, well, I guess now that you've taken land that we think is ours, we're going to go with you. I, I, I don't see that happening. And how do you think that the, the role of Modi will play into that? Because, you know, India might have been in different domestic political circumstances under the leadership of the Congress party, which was always much kind of more comfortably aligned with the liberal democratic West. And then now you have this, you know, Indian president who is part of a kind of Hindu nationalist movement. Do you think that then will feed into that foreign policy sort of spectrum? It does feed into it, whether I think that Indian policymakers would like it not to, right? And sort of like, well, our internal affairs are our business and foreign policy is foreign policy. And Modi's foreign policy has, it's gone, it's gotten slightly more pro-US and pro-Western, but it's not like dramatically different from what it was before, I wouldn't say. But do I think that with Donald Trump, it's it's a problem for, for Modi's India? No, I don't. I mean, when I was there, Trump came and visited and had a rally with Modi. Yeah. Do I think moving forward that that is sustainable? No, I, I, I don't really. Because if you're, if one of the things that you point to for this partnership is that we are both democracies and we both have these values and increasingly it's looking like you're not a liberal democracy and maybe one or both of you doesn't have these values, then sort of what is it based on? And I think, and this goes back to Russia, right? Because Russia is never going to critique India's internal policies or, I mean, is very unlikely to critique India's internal policies. So it sort of, the pendulum then swings back in that direction. I mean, Anoush and Alba, how does this look from the UK? Because, you know, in the UK, the big debate is about where Britain will position itself after Brexit. And then you have this kind of, you know, great power conflict rising in Asia. You know, how do you see the British kind of mentality when it when it comes to this tension? I think it's interesting because just listening to, to both of your discussion now and reading the coverage that you've been commissioning and writing, whenever you read about these these rising powers and these new sort of clashes of the of the big powers globally it serves to make more concrete this this feeling of britain being feeling increasingly irrelevant 
and that place in the world completely sort of jarring with the way that British politicians, Mm. particularly on the pro-Brexit side, have been speaking about the country and its prospects after Brexit. You know, I I always say this, I I really hope that they're right. I hope in some way that it it, it, it frees the country like the, the butterfly from the cage on the front cover of the spectator into this new sort of global Britain but unfortunately it doesn't appear to be going that way and you just see these kind of trade deals that they're they're trying to set up which which always sound like they're kind of tinkering around the edges and and they're only going to be sort of skeletal trade deals that in no way replace the kind of relationship that we had with Europe and the rest of the world before this yeah so reading about yeah particularly about the rise of China you just think where on earth does Britain sit in this we don't even know what our relationship with China is supposed to be you know there's a big split in the Conservative Party now over that with a sort of ERG equivalent group I think it's actually called the China Research Group yeah of China skeptic Tory MPs which span the politics of the Conservative Party so that's obviously going to be a stumbling block in the future when it's when it's something that that our government can concentrate on more fully yeah, I remember I went with back in the day with George Osborne to China shortly before the Brexit referendum on his kind of great sort of friendship tour, which was meant to inaugurate what was often discussed as the golden era in in British and Chinese relations in the run up to the to the referendum. On, you know, in in Cameron's early second term, and you know, the, the idea then was that we were in this world where. Alliances weren't that important where, you know, you could do a lot on bilateral terms, you know, you could, it was, you know, the UK-America relationship mattered a lot. This was back in a time when Obama was still president, when the transatlantic relationship was pretty incontroversial. And, you know, and China was kind of rising, and it seemed that Britain could play a kind of positive role in all of that. And at the same time, maintain relationships with all sorts of other powers around the world. And then you, you fast forward to where we are now where, you know, the EU is kind of tightening its own, you know, it's kind of pulling inwards and trying to become more of a geopolitical player when China looks a lot more threatening to a lot of the world, you know, not just because of COVID, but because of its, you know, military provocation. I mean, we were just talking about China and India, but also you could talk about the South China Sea and China's role in cyberspace. You know, when the US no longer looks like a particularly reliable player, Mm. I think that even if Joe Biden wins the election in November, I don't think we'll be dealing with the same America that we were dealing with under Obama. You know, the world is a very different place from how it was when Britain left the EU. And, you know, I was against Brexit then and I'm against Brexit now. But if you're going to do Brexit and try and make a success of it, my general view is that you should try and kind of at least move with the times and acknowledge the changes that are taking place and kind of adapt your vision. And I'm not looking at the mm. UK from Berlin. I'm not convinced that's happening. That does bring us on nicely to our next section, actually, because we're going to be talking about Biden. So shall we? Yeah, let's, yeah. let's, let's talk Biden. Great. Great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you'll have to do our call and response if you want to be true members of our podcast. We are actually going to steal this um, context. uh, I hope you do it with more enthusiasm than we do. (laughs) And now it's time for a section we like to call... You You Ask Ask Us. Us. Yeah. Very (laughs) good, Jeremy. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy was ready. (laughs) He was. He was excited. So we've had a number of questions from listeners about Biden. So I'm going to give you the one that is most nicely put... What other danger signs to look out for that would suggest that Joe Biden may yet screw this up? Now, that's from Ben Kappa, who says he loves the podcast as well. Thanks, Ben. (laughs) Emily, you've been covering this alongside our special correspondent in New York, Sophie McBain. What, What are the danger signs to look out for? 
I mean, I think the really, really dangerous thing is that we don't know what's going to happen between now and November, right? Obviously, we never know, but this year has just been one truly unexpected twist after another. And I think that Biden, that should the responsibility for that under normal normal circumstances would fall on Donald Trump because he's the incumbent. Um, but you never know how people are going to react if they become disenfranchised with the political process and so they stay home or if, you know, Joe Biden is speaking off the cuff and says something outlandish, which would not be the first time. And people really, you know, so far it hasn't seemed to matter. But if people really seize on that for whatever, whatever reason, I think the more than the danger signs, what we can be looking at is the warning signs for the election itself. You know, we're going to need mail-in voting for people to be able to safely go vote. Well, the president has said that that has said, has made the the unsubstantiated claim that mail-in voting increases fraud, even though he himself has voted by mail. So, you you know, you already see signs that he's trying to either suppress votes or cast out on the votes that have been, been cast. So for me, as a, an American citizen, that more than Joe Biden's independent actions is what I'm worried about. I mean, looking at things from Berlin, you know, a city where America's positive role in the world is kind of quite visible in many ways. You know, I live I live about five minutes from the Tempelhofer Felt, which was where the Western allies flew in supplies during the Berlin airlift. A lot of us are used to the idea that the US plays a positive role in the world. And yet we're entering an era where the US is pulling back and where its positive example is becoming so much weaker, you know, under Trump, especially you know, we'll have to see what happens under Biden. If this election turns out to be the debacle that it could be, where you have, you know, maybe quite low low turnout, where you have disputed voting over postal votes, and, you know, Trump saying that postal votes don't count, and others saying, yes, they do, and a lot of people choosing to vote by post because there's a second COVID wave. And when you have, you know, huge amounts of disinformation, and potentially a kind of narrow Biden win, under which Trump refuses to leave the White House initially. I mean, there are all sorts of insane scenarios that I don't think people outside the US are quite getting their head rounds yet. But, it, you know, it could, it could get incredibly messy. You could have a situation, I mean, you know, that, that there are suggestions that Trump could just refuse to leave the White House and could claim that the whole election was rigged. And you could end up by inauguration day essentially without a president. It could get very messy indeed. And, and you know, from my perspective, which is not just, you know, what does this mean for America, but what does it mean for the world? That could massively empower autocratic and kind of illiberal forces around the world who say, you know, elections are all relative and it doesn't matter if you win necessarily or you can do this or that. You know, the US, for all of its failings, still stands as a sort of, you know, example of a liberal democratic society. But that example is becoming weaker by the week at the moment. And I think a disastrous election could be catastrophic for the wider cause of liberal democracy around the world. It's interesting that you say about the the possibility that Trump wouldn't necessarily relinquish power if if he were to lose um, or if it were to be a quite narrow victory for Biden, because that's another question that several listeners sent in. I'm, I'm wondering, Emily, what you think of that? Yeah, so I actually interviewed Lawrence Douglas, who's the author of Will He Go? And it will be out next week, my interview with him. But as a preview, I mean, this is somebody who, who literally wrote wrote a book on Trump not stepping down. But what he said is that likelier than a scenario where you have like Trump being physically dragged out of the White House is that eventually he does not concede defeat, but submits to defeat. But so the question isn't if he loses, does he eventually leave? It's what damage does he does to the norms? 
of this country and of liberal democracy in general if he throws a fit, right? Like not to keep harping on mail-in voting, but it, it comes in after election night. They, they don't count those ballots until the election has happened. So if Trump has a narrow lead on election night and then that disappears because of mail-in votes, which are primarily from Democratic urban centers, one can easily imagine a situation in which Trump has spent the time of the counting disparaging the election results and undermining people's confidence in their electoral system. Douglas made the great point of, you know, actually the Constitution presupposes a peaceful transfer of power. It does almost nothing to guarantee it. So uh, <laughs> I think that's the concern. It's not like, will Trump eventually have to leave? If he loses by a small margin or even by a big margin, will Trump eventually have to walk out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Yes, he will. But what kind of chaos can he create before he does? I mean, I, I'd, I'd add to that that, you know, this is not just an abstract question. When we talk about what example does America set the world, it's not just kind of, you know, do people like America or do people like America's values? It's what does, you know, what comparisons are drawn when democracy is put to the test elsewhere? You know, look at Venezuela when Nicolas Maduro held a kind of skewed election and was challenged for the leadership by Juan Guaido, who was backed by many Western forces. You know, what happens in Russia when one of the things we've been following on the international pages of the New Statesman has been the kind of the relative decline of Putin in the last months. You know, he's been overtaken in opinion polling by a lot of regional governors. And there's this kind of big question about what happens if he continues to decline in support. What happens if Putin becomes kind of challenged by electoral results in Russia? Or what happens, you know, how does China take results from Hong Kong or Taiwan when they go to the polls? You know, will they will they take these seriously or will they, will they kind of just say this was all fixed? You know, these are serious elections that will change the course of history in many parts of the world. And in all of these cases, people will say, especially people who would want to delegitimize democratic results, will say, yeah, you know, even the U.S., doesn't really have a proper democracy because, you know, we had this chaotic election. Nobody really had their proper say. Trump didn't leave the White House when he said he would or, you know, it all went to the courts. This is not just a sort of abstract point about kind of grand American values. This will be applied around the world when elections are in question, as they often are. And I think, you know, a chaotic and contested election result, which seems absolutely possible, if not likely, in November, would make all of these cases more complicated. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Emily Tamkin, Jeremy Cliff and Alva Ray. Emily and Jeremy will have their own podcast, World Review, launching on Friday. And you can also read their weekly newsletter, World Review. Find it on our website, newstatesman.com. Our producer is Nick Hilton and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. 